0: to another episode of Shadow Talk, an information security and cyber threat intelligence podcast brought to you by Digital Shadows, a ReliQuest company. My name is Chris, and I'm very happy to be back on the podcast. Uh, I've actually been slightly ill this week, so I'm hoping that doesn't come across on the pod. I think my voice is mostly recovered, uh, so hopefully you don't hear that one. And I'm happy to be joined by Stefano of the House de Blassie. How's it going, Stefano? (laughs) You've been staying in loop on the latest developments on House of the Dragon. You're a fan of the show?
1: I am a big fan of the show. Hi, everyone. Uh, Good to be back. I've been a bit upset on the pod lately, so I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I saw, I watched the last episode yesterday. Big fan of Game of Thrones. I'm slowly becoming a fan of House of Dragons as well. So, yeah, yeah, excited about it. I I'm, saw that the next season is coming in 2024, so we've got a little bit to wait, but
0: yeah. Uh, I know, I was so gutted when I when I saw that. I thought i crying out loud. Can't you just get it out like early <laughs> next year? Get it out early. Um, I guess we shouldn't talk about it too much because um, like, we'll inevitably... <laughs> put across some spoilers on the podcast and it'll annoy our listeners who haven't caught up with that last episode. But if you're not uh, a fan of that show, definitely off the back of the success of Game of Thrones. So definitely check that one out. But yeah. we're not here to talk about that one, uh, unfortunately. We're here to talk about cyber threat intelligence. Uh, so I thought we'd start with a bit of a roundup of cyber activity that's relevant to the Russia-Ukraine war. Obviously, in the last month, there's been significant developments on the battlefield with Ukraine You know, making massive inroads in reclaiming territory, in uh, and near the city of Kharkiv has been retaken by Ukrainian forces also we have a buildup of forces in the south likely head of an offensive uh, into the city of Kherson and of course we've attacked against the uh Crimea bridge that was constructed by Russia that has put you know quite a deal, deal of logistical pressure on Russian forces and obviously you know everything we see seems to be pretty bad news for Russia which of course could be based on the inherent biases of the the media and the kind of material that we read But we're not here just to talk about military issues or Game of Thrones. I do obviously want to discuss cyber threat intelligence related stuff uh, with regards to Ukraine. And the best place to start is uh, I see in the last week the Cuba ransomware group have pivoted to targeting Ukrainian companies in the last week. So this is a really interesting group, Cuba. Um, they've been one of the more consistent ransomware outfits, I would say. Uh, they seem to be you know, pretty consistent over the last year, but also kind of flying under the radar compared to perhaps some of the more louder and brash of the, the ransomware groups that are out there. So the first question for you, Stefano, is, you know, what are the motivations of Cuba in targeting Ukraine? Uh, Cuba, of course, the group, not the country. And what do we know about this specific group? Yeah, so I think this one is interesting because like
1: for the vast majority, ransomware groups are financially motivated and mainly just care about the money. Ransomware is one of the most profitable criminal businesses out there. And so, yeah, I'd say the the vast majority of these groups just care about the money. But then occasionally we see some of these groups taking the side of some countries most of the time, I'd say it's Russia because, as we know, ransomware groups uh, tend to be based in Russia or former Soviet Union countries. So they have a little bit of that loyalty to to Moscow. But yeah, as I mentioned before, they're financially motivated for the big part. So they don't want to get too involved in politics because that's no good for their business. But sometimes we see that happening, and Cuba is a one of those, I'd say, in my opinion, because we've seen this ransomware group targeting Montenegro in the past. They targeted the parliament and that came in the middle of sort of not the best moment between the Montenegro government and the Russian one. So although we've got no certainty about it, it, there there were several indications pointing to that association between Cuba and Moscow. And... If we see now that Cuba is also targeting Ukrainian uh, government agencies and organizations, we then add another layer to that interpretation to sort of reinforce our first assessment. So we've got no evidence, of course, saying that Cuba is definitely working with Moscow. But there is starting to... You know, we're seeing a growing number of evidence pointing to some level of associations between these two parties.
0: Yeah I guess it comes on that spectrum of state involvement that we hark on about on the podcast quite a bit you know does it fall under the the category of kind of state encouraged perhaps or or state ignored where you know obviously Moscow is going to be pretty happy for cyber criminal groups targeting ukrainian organisations particularly government organisations causing damages you know they they're going to be more than happy for these cyber criminal groups to do that i did see the attack against montenegro at the end of august which, as you say, at the time was was assessed um, to be have been the result of kind of a uh, a Kremlin encouraged uh, operation or something of that nature. But it seems that the NATO member actually appeared to row back those claims that they think it was just financially motivated, which is interesting as well. I, I guess you kind of alluded to this question already, really. But um, have the cyber criminal community in general have they taken a side in this conflict?
1: We have seen some examples of it. In general, they remain agnostic to conflict because it's bad for their business. But we've seen some examples of cybercriminal groups taking sides. The most notorious one is probably the Conti ransomware group. If you remember, Conti was one of the most active and persistent ransomware groups in the threat landscape at the beginning of 2022. But when the war started, well, the invasion started in February 2022, a few days later, the CONTI group took the side of Russia, like released this statement that alluded to them uh being willing to attack every country's organizations that were like against Russia, uh, which created how a whole phenomenon of like a huge chain reaction of events that. Uh, severely impacted the threat landscape for the weeks and months that followed. You may remember, for example, the the huge phenomenon of the Conti leaks, where like a security security researchers managed to um, uh, to extract the logs of uh, of chats between Conti members and leaks them to the public. So a lot of things happened uh, in that time. We talked about it a lot in the pod, uh, but definitely, I'd say the rule was for cyber criminal groups to stay away of this conflict at least officially like they didn't release a lot of press releases but when they did
0: they made a lot of noise yeah we all remember the infamous conti leaks and the uh, the treasure trove of intelligence that that kind of led to um obviously security researchers were were crawling all over that one and like you say it probably led to the downfall of that group so like you say it it it's probably a good thing for these groups to stay agnostic or at least not publicly take sides because it can have consequences for the, the operations of those groups, really. I see in other developments kind of a, a, a bit of a different flavor, really, this this time in hacktivism. The IT Army of Ukraine, which you may remember were kind of called to action by Ukraine's defense minister, announced this week that they'd successfully compromised a, a Russian telco, you know, what do we know of this incident Are and are hacktivists having, continue to have a demonstrable impact in this war?
1: Yeah, so the phenomenon of hacktivism, it's, I think it's particularly interesting if we look at the Russia-Ukraine war, because before this war, hacktivism was like a sort of threat in a declining trend I remember like even in the reports that we wrote before the the outbreak of this war, like when we were talking about hacktivism, we said, you know, it was a threat right now. It's like, not really, like you don't have to get too worried about it. When I'm writing a report right now, I can't say the same thing, because after the outbreak of the war, activist groups on both sides of the conflict, so pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian, really started impacting the threat landscape. On the pro-Ukrainian side, the IT Army of Ukraine is one of the most relevant one, of course, because it was centrally organized, and it gathered a huge number of volunteers that wanted to engage in this conflict in various forms of activism, including distributed denial of service, defacement attacks, data destruction activities, and all this kind of, of jazz. And for this attack, what we've seen is that, yeah, they managed to compromise and steal a lot of sensitive data from really prominent technology and telecommunications, Russian company called FTNET, which is important for two main reasons. First, because it showed that their capabilities have expanded. So this is not a classic dealers attack crowdsourced by volunteers, but they actually managed to breach an organization that, I would say, has got a well-funded security program, extract that data, and publish it. So it shows first that their capabilities uh, are growing, and second, they also cause like, quite a significant damage to this organization, because like we're talking about a technology and telecommunication company, which means they probably have some really sensitive data about their customers, about third parties, which can impact the, the business in the short and long term. So I'd say it is an interesting development, and it is one to
0: keep an eye out. Excellent. Yeah, I always thought of hacktivism as kind of more of an annoyance than a, a, a real legitimate threat that you could put on on par with kind of cyber criminality, obviously nation state threats. One of the, the, so we actually, I'll, I'll touch upon this later, but one of the pieces of work we're working on at the moment is uh, a threat predictions for 2023. Uh, so that's going out to our clients next week. And we also will have an external blog on this note. And one of the the big pieces we have in there is that the resurgence of activism is likely to continue into 2023, again, largely kind of dependent on geopolitical events. But the, I think the big change we've seen this year is like you say, is this crowdsourcing of, of kind of, resources and and people to actually go out and commit attacks and the coordination of those pieces pieces of attacks and those at that activity in a, a centralized location so we've obviously talked in the podcast before about dumps forum so this is a a forum which hacktivists uh, uh, supporting Ukraine can kind of come together on a centralized place go out and coordinate and teach each other how to commit certain attacks so that's something that we've really seen in, in the last year is that that, that piece of activism can really, really have a demonstrable impact on the battlefield, and, and like you say in this case, cause a real significant impact to a, a significant Russian telco. We'll switch fire over to, uh, back over to ransomware and another really important incident in the last week. The Vice Society Threat Group have been targeting ransomware payloads against the education sector, and that's been happening for quite a while actually, against the United States and other worldwide targets. And of course, this isn't necessarily new information, but the group are known for using kind of multiple ransomware strains in some attacks. Microsoft has seen them using this tactic, again, against the U.S. uh, education sector, particularly between July and October of this year. So the question for you, Stefano, first is why are VICE so interested in targeting the education sector? This really does seem to be their speciality, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, there is like definitely disproportionate attention of this group towards this sector which I find personally particularly annoying, but in terms of why they do it, I would say that contrary to like you know big organizations that can fund huge security budgets, the education sector and in particularly the public schools do not have that option. Uh, they're often very under resourced from that point of view in terms of cybersecurity, but basically every other aspect of it like public schools they're not the most wealthy organizations ever i don't think at least not in italy uh, but i expect the same thing to be in the rest of the world
0: right it's absolutely the case here yeah and I'm, i'm sure it is in the u.s as well
1: yeah so when you know, targeting these organizations like these schools is definitely easier than targeting, you know, a big tech organization with a really huge security budget. At the same time, I think it's quite risky to do that in the long term because, you know, schools are considered like a pillar of today's societies. So governments uh, are very well interested in defending them against these sort of attacks. But at the same time, they're also very interested in restoring the, the business continuity as soon as possible because like we want our kids to go to school and we want to their we want their data to be secure and safe. So I get why vice would target them because it represents like a quick payout from a financial point of view. In the long term, I don't think it's a profitable strategy because governments can get really into defending the public sector at least they should and from a moral point of view ransomware is never good of course but when you see targeting you know these sort of vulnerable sectors like the education or the healthcare, like we saw during the covid pandemic you know adds that layer of why you're doing that you know don't have a limit. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but you you, you get my point. Uh, I get really annoyed when I see schools and hospitals attacked by these groups.
0: It, it's pretty gross, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Obviously, we we um, observe the, the activity of these groups, and you can kind of see, you know, postings made exposing PII of essentially minors. And I I, I agree with you. It's absolutely gross. It, yeah. It's just a horrible thing for them to do. I guess it's, like you say, it's just a, a combination of the fact that these targets, uh, which I guess is what they are to, to the likes of Vice Society, are susceptible in that they don't have particularly mature security models. I think back to the school that I went to many, many years ago now, and you probably had like just a handful of individuals doing IT across the whole organization, which was, you know, quite a significant, you know, amount of infrastructure, really, and that they are sensitive in that obviously people want their their kids to go back to to school and and to learn, they need to be there every week, so having an extended outage just isn't acceptable, really. And then you think of the pressure that my like, parents would bring on the yeah. school. You know, <laughs> why are my kids not in school? They don't understand the fact that the you know, all the IT infrastructure has been turned off. Uh, it's like, well, why can't you just switch it back on? You know, that kind of thing. You can imagine that coming in, right? And yeah, then it, yeah, right. Who, who pays out in in the in the targeting of a school? Would that be like the local council? Maybe, I assume they have cyber insurance as well. You know, maybe they don't. I wouldn't be 100% sure of that. Like Italian schools,
1: Italian public schools with cyber insurance seems a bit futuristic to me, got to say. <laughs> I, I would be happy... <laughs> If someone reached out to me and say, oh, no, all our schools have got cyber insurance that cover for ransomware attacks. I'll be really happy. I don't see that happening. No, so. no
0: they've, they've probably got, you know, like fire insurance and kind of theft and stuff, I would imagine, yeah. but maybe not cyber insurance. Um, but they probably should, you know, judging yeah. by this story. Why would a ransomware group use multiple multiple forms of malware uh, in this case? You know, does that take additional skills or infrastructure? You know, what would be the advantages or disadvantages of such an approach? It was very
1: interesting for me to see that this group was using different sort of malware ransomware strains to conduct this attack. Because usually what we used to see is that, you know, a ransomware group... Uh, with a name uses a ransomware variant with a name that's sort of pretty straightforward. Where we have, you know, the ransomware group controlled by the operators and the malware developers, and then a plethora of other threat actors, including affiliates, initial access brokers, in some cases, even PR people, you know, managing the rest of the operation. However, in this case, we've seen, well, Microsoft has seen Vice Society using different malware strains, Which I think may refer to the fact that, you know, maybe this group has been created by different members that previously worked with other malware families. And so they're used to use them. And maybe it's a combination of, you know, affiliates from other ransomware families. So it can be, there can be a lot of reasons for that. I don't know if you have anything in mind for it, because it is an interesting. An interesting insight into this group's operations, isn't it?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think it's probably reflecting that kind of interjection of m- criminals working across multiple organizations. So they they often rebrand, they kind of start things up again, they move to work for another ransomware outfit. That's probably what's happened here, whether you have like affiliates who are skilled on a certain type of ransomware malware um and they just think, well, this is something I'm just gonna continue using. I'm not gonna learn a new skill. I can just continue, you know, using what I've got kind of thing. You know, other than that, you know, maybe they're they're trying to keep defenders kind of guessing, you know, on on what they're doing. I think that's probably less likely. You know, if you're an education sector target, I don't think you're worried about what type of ransomware it is. It's just, oh, my goodness, you know, this is this is caused a huge impact. Um, yeah. Perhaps perhaps from the group's perspective, they're also like live testing various types of ransomware to determine which is the most effective uh, potentially. And of course, we also know of ransomware source code leaks, which allow other users to kind of conduct their own attacks. So they might have got their hands on, on different forms of malware, really. But that's essentially what comes to mind for me with this one
1: yeah i think it's interesting and well in the end we're left guessing because it's like a new development at least one that i hadn't seen before uh which makes it interesting of course from like a an analyst point of view uh but yeah it will be interesting to see how this story develops and both from the point of view of yeah the use of different malware strains but also to see if the strategy of attacking the public sector, the public education sector, will pay out in the end.
0: Absolutely. Let's move on to the last topic today, and uh, we're moving back to hacktivism. I really should have planned these questions out better, shouldn't I? We've gone ransomware hacktivism, then to ransomware, back to hacktivism. So last up today, uh, we're discussing a recent attack that was conducted against the Iranian nuclear program on the 24th of October. And of course, when any threat actor targets critical national infrastructure, or in this case, you know, a nuclear program, there's a possibility for things to escalate or go south pretty fast. So, Stefano, could you tell us a little more about the group that were responsible for this attack, uh, who are Black Reward, and what did they achieve? Yes, sure. So
1: this group, um, Black Reward, as you mentioned, allegedly claims to be part of the Iranian hacker community. And it's treated by you actually says that they oppose the nation's theocratic government, which they label as a criminal one. The group appears to be highly active now because of the of the protests, protests spread across Iran in the wake of the death of Masa Amini, uh, the woman who died after being taken into custody, for not observing Iran's um, strict uh, dress code for women. Uh, so... According to these groups, bio they are internal to Iran. They're not like a foreign activist group. Uh, But of course, you know, when they claim that for themselves, like we can't be sure, but it's in terms of attribution, that's what we know. And in terms of motivation, we know that they're responding to this process. Uh, They're not the only one interested in what's happening in Iran, of course, and These sort of attacks, these sort of activist operations, as we mentioned before, like we were talking about, the IT Army of Ukraine really have the potential of impacting a lot of people. In this case, they target like an ambitious organization, like the nuclear facility of Iran. But I think at least they will be glad that it's
0: not Stuxnet this
1: time because it could have been much worse.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, if you're the Iranians, you know, you're know, you not allowed to mention Stuxnet, I imagine. It's a banned word in that country. But yeah, it could have been worse from their perspective. A bit of a, obviously, you just touched on motivations. How do you perceive Iran in the, the current cyber threat landscape? Obviously, there's a lot happening within that country, but they also have an active role in what's going on in, in Ukraine, in Eastern Europe, with the supply of UAVs. And kind of elsewhere, you know, how do you perceive Iran in the in a, the threat landscape at the moment? Yeah, it's
1: definitely a really, really important player. Uh one that maybe is not talked about as much, like as we see we Russia or China or North Korea. But it's definitely up there. It's like a central state for the for the stability of the whole Middle East and beyond. So it's normal that it plays a huge role for the stability of that region and the rest of the world, of course. And as every state with that sort of responsibility of like weight from a geopolitical point of view, they've also developed some significant uh, cyber capabilities, both offensive and defensive, because as we know, Iran is in well it's got like some tense situation with various countries among them the us and israel so which are two of the most if not the most advanced states in terms of cyber capabilities so it is an important state in terms of cyber criminals it is not as impactful as for example developments happening in russia for western organizations but therefore in the grand scheme of things, it is a key player uh, from a, both the geopolitical point of view and for the cyber threat landscape.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, they're a major player in offensive cyber operations um, in a tumultuous part of the world with, with really huge importance. So, you know, uh, important not to forget that and obviously just focus on what's going on in Eastern Ukraine. There's, there's other things happening as well. Um, Thank you so much. Uh, We'll end the podcast there. Um, I'll just quickly mention the blogs. So we have one this week detailing uh, the CV quarterly roundup, basically everything you need to know from a vulnerability perspective in Q3 2022. That went live uh, this week on Wednesday the 26th. And we also have a blog going out next week uh, that, as I mentioned earlier, details 2023 predictions from a cyber threat intelligence perspective and we've kind of broken it down to cyber criminal um, predictions and what's going to happen from a nation-state perspective uh, and also um, hacktivism as well Um, so i'll be writing that one in the next two days Uh, so definitely go and check that one out next week and that's it for today thanks for tuning in and also thanks to stefano stay safe everyone and we'll see you next week thank you bye-bye